0: I spoke to Haviv Rettigur last Sunday and had every intention of publishing this podcast sooner. Truth is that I, like so many Israelis and State of Tel Aviv listeners, was just overcome with emotional exhaustion in recent days. The excruciating wait for the staged release of hostages held by Hamas took and takes a toll on individuals, families, the nation. And that is exactly why these savage terrorists exploit the hostage plight to the max. This is full-on psychological warfare. But, according to Haviv Redigur, what Hamas fails to take into account is the resolve of Israelis to withstand Hamas cruelty. October 7th was an unmitigated tragedy, but it did arouse the fiercest character traits of Israelis. And they will fight to the end to destroy Hamas militarily in tandem with the country's unbending dedication to free every last hostage and body held captive in Gaza. Haviv expresses these harsh realpolitik matters with his customary eloquence and intellectual clarity. It was a privilege to speak with him, and his thoughts are as relevant today as they were on Sunday, perhaps more so. A small refresher. Last Sunday, we had seen three groups of hostages released, beginning on the previous Friday. Among those freed were members of a family from Kibbutz Beri, with whom Haviv and his family have a personal connection. We begin today's podcast with this very moving story. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, currently living in the magnificent state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Haviv Redegur, so nice to have you back on the state of Tel Aviv. Great to see you this morning.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure. We were just speaking before we began the interview formally, and it's always a little kind of scary to ask someone in Israel how they're doing, but I asked you and I received a surprising answer, an upbeat answer. Your friends, your very good friends, were released from Hamas captivity after 50 days. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My wife works in an organization called Lobby 99, it's a basically a consumer protection watchdog NGO, and it's not a large organization. I think 12, 13 employees and one of her colleagues and friends at that organization, Sheked Haran, is from Kibbutz Beeri, one of the kibbutzim that were targeted in October 7. And eight members of her family are missing from that day. And over the course of the last seven weeks, more and more have been sort of confirmed, have take, been taken hostage including three-year-old Yahel, including eight-year-old Naveh, 12-year-old Noam, um, um, her husband, the sister's husband, in other words, and so just family, just the mother is still missing. They were the group, part, some of the part of their family was the group let out last night, including Noam, Naveh, and three-year-old Yahel, and their mother. Their father is still held by Hamas. He wasn't released, but the mother and the children were. And I have been a sideshow to this uh story. I have been in a group of i don't know over two hundred volunteers that have taken their story to the international press and tried to bring it to c n n and the Indian television and German television and places like that, trying to lend whatever I had right to lend like two hundred others. But my wife has been deeply involved in building for them that support and that that public campaign and and it was just there at the funerals as they buried three members of the family who were found including the grandfather and just we were we were tied to this event so to speak in a way that was personal it's different when it's just it's literally that one person who you know and so that lifted to some significant extent the dad is still held back and that would ordinarily be catastrophic except his two kids were just rescued. And so it feels better. It's like, it's a weird thing to reach a level of catastrophic and have it be a, just feel like, like, like such a relief. Yeah. Absolutely. And so there's a huge weight lifted and just the knowledge that, you know, and again, I'm in an outer circle of this story, but even that experience is a powerful, a powerful one. For hundreds of families, there's still family members in there. There's still the story isn't over. There's still children. Hamas kept some of the youngest children that those have not yet come out. We know that there are 13 hostages tonight. It is we're recording at about 5.45 p.m. Israel time. We know that the Red Cross has taken possession of 13 more. We don't, I don't yet know who they are. So hopefully this process will continue. Hopefully the ceasefire will hold. Hamas certainly seems to think it's in its interest to have this happen. And hopefully there's a lot more relief coming for a lot more families.
0: Let me ask you just, you may not know the answer to this, the wife, children, and the husband who remains in captivity in in the Gaza Strip, were they held together or were they separated while they were in the Gaza Strip for the last 50 days? Do you know that?
1: Well, so I don't know much. And what I do know of what happened to them, I I don't have their permission to talk about. The children and the mother I think, as far as I know, and I don't know, so I'll hazard the educated guess that they were in touch. I don't know about the father, and I can't say more than that until the family decides to talk.
0: Absolutely. And they all, I assume, lived on Kibbutz Berry.
1: Yes. I think some of them were family members visiting the family in Kibbutz Berry. Not all of them were taken to residence, but they were all there that day because they were spending the holiday with family there.
0: Yeah, it's It's story we hear over and over and over, and it's beyond heartbreaking. Well, I'm glad that there's some relief, not just for the family, but for all of those who support them. And uh, let's hope it continues until the very last one is out. I want to dwell a little on the hostage issue, and then move to the bigger picture that we were discussing earlier. And we have this four-day pause, right? There's supposed to be 50, maybe more hostages released. There's supposed to be A priority given to uh, children and mothers, supposed to be priority given to releasing them together, which we've already seen breached as a condition, Um, but no talk of men being released uh, or soldiers. I'd like to hear your thoughts as to how Israel gets to that point where it can get all of its hostages released. What kind of pressure, what will it take for Hamas to release everyone?
1: I don't know. And I'm pessimistic. This is a war in which Israel has decided that it can no longer afford to have this threat. It can no longer afford to have an organization with terroristic sort of mindset, hides among civilians, targets civilians, but also believes itself to be essentially invincible and protected by the fact that it has spent 17 years digging trenches and tunnels and bunkers under a civilian population where 100% of its targets are under a civilian population. It controls an economy. It controls a territory. It controls billions in aid. It controls vast support from Iran and Qatar. It is a state and kind of a terror group. It combines both into a combination that is an invincible strategic threat. And what made it invincible in its own understanding of the strategic situation is that Israel would have to cut through the civilian population to get to it because of how it had essentially constructed Gaza's infrastructure for 17 years now. After October 7, that unbelievable cost was something that Israel was willing to pay for the first time. The policy of containment that had reigned was partly because Israel didn't want to pay the cost in Gazan civilian lives, in Israel's own international standing, that it would be required to actually go after Hamas given how it had constructed the strategic environment of Gaza, after October 7, it became okay. It became a cost we are willing to bear and willing to inflict on Gaza's population. And so I think that for Israelis, the hostage issue is not just about the hostages, because there is no amount of hostages Hamas could release that would get us to stop the war without Hamas disarming or leaving Gaza. Now there's the threat of Hamas has to be ended. And that tells me, if that's true, and everyone says it's true, then that tells me that the the hostages are the second priority, not the first priority of the war. But what the hostages are, every Israeli is desperate to get them out, truly. I mean, we have numbers among Arab Israelis, vast majority are desperate to get them out. There are Arab Muslim hostages. After Arab Muslims were murdered, on October 7th. So it's unbelievable unanimity of the type we have never seen before in Israeli Mm -hmm. society. We want to get them out. But they represent something. And that is a strategic danger for Hamas that Hamas doesn't understand yet. They are the symbol of what it is about Hamas that we cannot tolerate. That is the reason we can inflict and we can suffer the costs of this war.
0: You said they represent exactly what we cannot tolerate. How would you describe that? Put that in words. What is it that they represent?
1: We betrayed them. We did not protect them. These are children. There's a 10-month-old baby Hamas is still holding. Maybe he's out now, maybe not, to see what it can get for him on, what are we, 51 days, something like that. We betrayed them. And that's our civil religion. That is our identity. That is what we are. We are that bond, that agreement that we defend each other. And we betrayed them on October 7th. And every day that they wave those hostages in front of us, thinking they've found our weak point, is a day that they reaffirm our absolute commitment to destroy Hamas's existence, capacity, political, military capacity in Gaza and ultimately everywhere. The war against Hamas is now a permanent feature of the Israeli psyche. And that's what the hostages mean to us. Now, we will exchange a delay in that war for hostages, but they won't end the war with those hostages. And every time they come talking to us about hostages, they remind us of the need for the war. And so Hamas have built for themselves in our psyche a trap that they will not be able to
0: escape. There's a lot of uh, discussion about whether or not the pause was well advised in terms of after a four-day pause, it's going to be very difficult to restore the momentum and continue the operation with the same vigor and focus. You've heard these discussions. I've heard and read about them. And we've seen, in particular, the Minister of Defense, Joao Galant going out and saying, nope, we're not going to miss a beat. We're going to come back and be just as strong, if not stronger. Are you at all concerned about the IDF or even the Israeli National Resolve? Petering, weakening because of the pause? Or do you think that's a non issue? No. Okay. I
1: don't think that's real. I think y- you and I belong to the chattering classes who our colleagues and friends are always talking. There was always something. It's amazing how there's always just enough news to fit all the pages of the newspaper, right? Oh. There's always something to talk about. I understand the anxiety because I understand the fear that we won't, because in the past we haven't, but it is a different country and October 7th hasn't gone away for us and so and they're holding children and so no i don't think they'll miss a beat i know for a fact that the idf is preparing that moment of reignition of the war effort and preparing to do it cleverly i know for a fact i don't know it from a first source but i know it because there's no other no way it's not true that hamas is preparing to with this time a surprise for the idf we will lose some soldiers in a successful hamas surprise attack somewhere because of this But no, the war effort will resume.
0: Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. StateofTelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. This is something I struggle with personally so deeply, is what you called the betrayal. There is the social contract, the deep social contract that we the reason the state exists is to protect us. And the betrayal was so profound. There's a deep mistrust that abides since October seventh between the people and the army and the people and the government. What's your view?
1: I think that the government we've we have polls on this now, and I think that the government absolutely has lost all trust. Because of the judicial reform fight and the divide, the this government went into the war went into October 7th with a massive trust deficit. Right, They've lost every poll in nine months, in terms of if the, every election poll in nine months. But after the war, uh, I, I really think that Benjamin Netanyahu personally, the prime minister who has championed the containment policy, the theory that Hamas had deterred, has championed it for 15 years, basically. And he had a government in 2009 with the left, with Ehud Barak, This was their Gaza policy, and he has a government now with uh, the far right and even the extreme right. And this is the Gaza policy. This is Netanyahu's Gaza policy. And that, of course, added to that trust deficit. So there's a huge trust deficit there. The army we have watched in the polls climb back up to the very top of the trusted institutions. Everyone understands. And by the way, the army leadership, the head of army intelligence, the chief of staff of the army, the head of Southern Command, every single one of them went in front of the cameras and said, this was my screw up. I did this. And people lower down the chain as well said, I screwed this up. I messed this up. I have a debt. I will learn that that lesson. I will. In other words, I will resign after the war. right? Right. But there's a war to do right now. And we've built all these forces. This army, even though it was caught with its pants down, it's not an incompetent army and it has now to do the job. And the job, it, is, it, it actually didn't trust itself when October 7 happened. And you saw that the army called up a quarter million reservists, something like that, starting October 8, 9. And those reservists went to the Gaza border and then sat there for three weeks while the army had essentially thrown out all of its battle plans, everything it thought it would ever be doing in Gaza, and wrote new battle plans and sent all these soldiers. Not one of those soldiers was sitting around doing nothing. They were training intensively. There was a fascinating interview by the commander of the Givati Brigade's elite units, who is a uh, lieutenant colonel. He's in Gaza. He has probably suffered the most deaths after October 7th, in actual combat in Gaza. His soldiers are the frontline crack troops in every of the major engagements so far. And he said, you know, in the first two weeks of the fighting, this I guess was about a week and a half ago, he said in the first two weeks of the fighting, we were learning our enemy, because it turns out we didn't actually know our enemy. And there was a terrible price to that learning. They surprised us. We lost men. But now we know our enemy, and they're failing to surprise us at every turn. And we are destroying their capacity to fight, and we are sealing up those tunnel entrances. They have bombed and, and sealed well over 600 of those tunnel entrances. In parts of Gaza City, they're essentially burying the Hamas fighters down in those tunnels. They're burying them alive. The Hamas fighters, if they want to survive, will have to eventually come up. And that's the strategy. So the army has shown us, and all of this stuff that I'm telling you is is accessible to Israelis. This is in our press. This is on our TVs. The army has shown us that it is earning back our trust. And that trust is 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 in the 90s now. It's back in the highest percentage as you could be. And and I think it is earning that trust. I think it's doing very good job in Gaza, getting the job done.
0: I agree, and I've been reading those reports, and uh, it's very reassuring. Still doesn't take away, it'll never vitiate what happened on October 7th, and also doesn't uh, change the fact that we have a prime minister and a civilian government that I think it's fair to say is reviled pretty widely and that remains in power and in control. How is that dance working out between the army, which still has to defer to the civilian government and its judgment or lack thereof?
1: It's a great question. And the simple answer is that it's being handled very delicately and it's constantly being debated among Israelis. In other words, there is a, the first week after October 7, there was the big question of, well, it's time for a unity government. Nobody's gonna talk now about judicial reform, right? Who's willing to come in? And Lapid was willing to come in, but only if Netanyahu kicks out Smotrich and Benvir. And he argued that's actually relevant to the war because Smotrich and Benvir want to do things in Gaza that I will not be willing to do. And so they established a five-member war cabinet made up of Benny Gantz, Gadie Eisenkot from Benny Gantz's party, both of them former chiefs of staff of the army, the defense minister Gallant who is a former major general of the army, Netanyahu, and basically Netanyahu's, I think, most trusted advisor, who is minister Ron Dermer. And they're the five-member war cabinet, and they bring a tremendous amount of military experience. They're making the decisions. And that body, that five-member body, has a lot of public trust. Because it isn't just Netanyahu, because it's from across the aisle, because there's many decades of military experience in that five-member committee. And so the, the government understood the trust deficit, understood the needs of the hour. By the way, it took a lot of squeezing of Netanyahu to get it done. But he did eventually understand it and get it done. And that's basically how they've managed it.
0: So then Netanyahu manages his caucus, so to speak or his government partners. I just, for all of Dermer's extraordinary talent and accomplishments, I would not have considered military expertise to be among them.
1: I am of the view that I'm very glad he's in there. I don't know him. I know of him. I've read him. I know people who know him. But I read a wonderful book once by Professor Elliot Cohen of West Point, a book called Supreme Command. And in that book, he goes through uh, Clemenceau and Lincoln and Ben-Gurion and several of these civilian prime ministers commanding the war who were deeply involved in the management of war strategy and sometimes really had to squeeze their generals and bend their generals to their will and were civilians without military experience. Right, And that civilian perspective decided the war. In other words, that was the critical thing that, because armies are always fighting the last war. By definition, they literally build the army for the last war. And so Right. The the future war sometimes will be a different kind of war. There'll be a different perspective that you have to come in from the outside that the general inside the army won't see. I wish there were more non-military civilians in that war cabinet with odd, different perspectives. Ron Dermer deeply knows America. America has turned out to be one of the most important um, arenas in which this whole thing is being uh, fought, right? Uh, I, I, I don't think uh, Joe Biden sent aircraft carriers to the Eastern Mediterranean out of mere love for us. I do think he has a tremendous affinity for Israel, but I think he thought we were about to go crazy and he wanted to be there at the table to make sure we don't go too crazy. In other words, this is not my view. It's, I think, the generally believed Israeli view, but it's a bear hug to try and also control us a little bit and limit the damage, limit the war from expanding into the North into Iran, et cetera. But nevertheless, that's a tremendous help. Being able to, to fight Hamas while Iran is deterred And then later, maybe have the war with Hezbollah, if Hezbollah doesn't understand that it's a new Israel and comes at us a little too strongly, is an extremely huge benefit. And Dermer is someone who can bring that kind of understanding to the table in a way that, frankly, people like and Gantz, and Galland, raised in the Israeli army, not very good English, won't have and won't be able to bring to the table.
0: And Dermer with Blinken, they're a perfect bridgehead, those two, in my view. Very similar kind of backgrounds. And both very smart guys, very solid and a lot of experience. I want to close by some two questions I want to get at with you. We saw Putin rear his head in the last few days and use his influence to show the world that he can have his nationals sprung from captivity in the snap of a finger. What's he uh, playing with there? I
1: got to tell you, if I was a Russian, I'd be deeply unimpressed. It's day 50. The third group to be released. And he managed to squeeze one dual national Russian in by bringing the entire weight of the Russian presidency to bear. Okay, I'll give it to him. He can put in a request with Iran that Hamas will listen to. I don't think that's very impressive. I don't think it shows that Putin is somehow uh, able to. uh, Hamas isn't sacrificing for this. It already has the ceasefire with Israel to make it safe to release this person. And now it's doing Putin a favor. Putin didn't get Hamas to actually sacrifice. So I don't think it's a sign of real influence.
0: What do you make of the sort of cliffhanger that went down yesterday with Hamas kind of the stop and go and stop and go and claiming that Israel was breaching the agreement? What were they doing there? Why do you think they were doing that?
1: I don't take Hamas at its word. I don't think there were Israeli breaches. The details that Hamas gave us, according to what we understand of the agreement, those are not requirements of Israel. Hamas itself broke the agreement in yesterday's group by releasing a daughter without her mother. Hamas claimed to Israel that it didn't know where to find her mother, and it offered instead of the the daughter whose mother it couldn't find to release two grandmothers. And the Israelis said, no, we prioritize the kids, give us the kid, and we'll talk about the mother later. Is Hamas really having trouble finding that mother? Who knows? They are a bunch of lying liars, obviously. The question is, and by the way, even if Israel breached in some way, Hamas's deep interest is to have this happen. It is desperate for these days. It needs to rescue people out of the north of Gaza to the south. It needs to regroup. It needs to have people breathe air. These fighters have been seven weeks underground. It needs this time. And so I I think that was all... Hamas testing Israel. It was delaying all of a sudden. It was delaying with very silly reasons. The Qataris actually told the Israelis that they're embarrassed because the Qataris had put their... The Qataris are pro-Hamas, but they also just like to look effective and honest and, and have people believe them. And so my sense of it was that Hamas was testing whether the Israelis were cowering, were scared, were desperate. And the Israeli cabinet's response, Gallant said this, and Israeli defense officials anonymously said, okay, war begins at midnight. That was it. And it was over. And there was no other Israeli response. And they let the Egyptians and the Qataris figure it out. And it worked. And so to me, that reinforces the sense that this is a a desperate Hamas. That doesn't mean it's not the Hamas that's going to have a massive battle. And When Israel moves south and Hamas is actually fighting for its survival, that's going to be a horrific battle. And Hamas will be able to inflict on us real losses because it has prepared that battlefield for a very long time, and it's capable and has will surprise us, but it is desperate. It is suddenly finding itself in a strategic situation it didn't expect and didn't prepare for. And that was one of its attempts to fi- find out if Israel really had changed in that regard. And I think they found out that it has.
0: I want to close with this. You commented earlier at the beginning that Hamas, That it's clear in the way that Israel has approached this war, that the priority is to destroy Hamas as a military threat with any real capability. And that as important as the liberation of the hostages is, that seems to be a secondary priority. So in effect, as you said, burying these Hamas fighters alive, because they can't dig out when they're Exits and entrances are full, but there may be hostages in there as well, correct? Being buried alive in captivity with them.
1: Yes. the This, by the way, tonight's group, the Red Cross had to go to northern Gaza to get them. So there are still hostages in northern Gaza in that theater where that's the idea of strategy.
0: There are two groups <laughs> in particular. I worry about them all, but I worry desperately about the soldiers. And I worry desperately about the young women who they took back. With the, and they stated it proudly and clearly with the intention to use them as sex slaves. And I can't imagine that many of those will survive and be released. What's your view?
1: I think with Hamas, the equation is simple. But everything we have seen from Hamas is that military pressure is the only thing that works. And we have a lot more military pressure we can employ. We don't actually need the world to be at our side for this war, and we will not accept an end to this war in which Hamas exists here, irrespective of whether the world decides to sanction us or hate us or not send us hellfire missiles or whatever. There's no missile that that we buy from America or Europe that we don't know how to build ourselves some alternative to it. Any chance we have of getting them out is on the other end of massive military pressure. And they will be able to buy from us. They won't buy Hamas's survival in Gaza, but they will be able to buy from us their personal survival, fleeing Gaza. They'll be able to buy from us a respite of a day, two, six, if they give us real numbers. And that will remain true going forward. In other words, they're giving us some of the kids in this round. Hopefully mm-hmm. this lasts all nine days and we get all the kids. They've come to understand, I think because their allies in the West have told them, The thing with the kids is really hurting our ability to uh, rally governments, et cetera, against Israel. So there's a sense that getting rid of the kids is not a disaster for them. It's a benefit to them. The soldiers will be easier for the world to stomach, but not much easier for Israelis. And so then we're going to have to get back with much more military pressure and a much more desperate Hamas. We're willing to go there. And so soldiers will remain important to us and remain important to our war goals, and they will be a currency with which Hamas can buy its survival, not its survival in Gaza, but its survival going forward. And so, I guess what I'm saying is, if Hamas are stupid, those soldiers will die. If Hamas are smart, those soldiers will live. And a few Hamas Nikim are going to live because of that. And I'm okay with that equation.
0: And you're also saying that Israel's resolve to see this through to the end whatever the consequences may be internationally in terms of international pressure, sanctions, pariah nation, you're saying we've got this. We're strong. Our resolve is and that this country will stand firm until our goals are achieved. Is that fair?
1: Israelis have to be safe in the Gaza periphery area. If they're not safe, we will be in a war. And if they are safe, the war can end and nothing the world does will change that. Since Hamas took over in 2007, uh, took over Gaza in a violent coup in which it killed 500 Palestinians, members of Fatah. Israel's GDP per capita has doubled. And so if the world decides to squeeze us, to sanction us, to cut our economy in half, it's back to 2007. 2007 was okay. And if that gets rid of Hamas, it's worth it. And so I think when Hamas realizes that, the costs will go down. Because Hamas will understand that, it has only one way of surviving and that's leaving. Until Hamas realizes it, we need to explain it to them. And incidentally, international pressure in that regard helps us. This sounds counterintuitive, but if the world actually squeezes us and that doesn't stop the war, Hamas will understand that faster. So international pressure helps the war effort. International pressure not being applied on us helps the war effort. We are in a psychological state in which the world can reduce the cost to Gaza only by pressuring Hamas. And and there just isn't any other alternative. If an Israeli government leaves Hamas intact in Gaza, that Israeli government will be replaced by one that won't leave Hamas intact in Gaza.
0: Aviv, thank you so much for your time and sharing your always really brilliant insights and thoughts. And I hope the next time we speak that uh, this war is more or less over.
1: Thank you. I hope so too.
0: Since we spoke on Sunday, additional hostages have been released. Israel hopes to at least secure the freedom of all women and children held by Hamas before resuming the war. But that goal remains elusive. There are many young women, soldiers, women from the music festival and Eirik, it would Kibbutzim, that remain hostage. What they are suffering, as well as the elderly and military-age Israeli men, is so painful to contemplate. Many were badly injured when taken captive and we know enough now to be certain that they are being kept alive in increasingly abhorrent conditions. There is a war, very little food, terrible hygienic conditions, and often physical and psychological mistreatment and torture. Hostages already released have been tight-lipped, in large part because they worry for family and others still in that hell, and do not want to do or say anything that may make their situation worse. But enough has slipped out in the Israeli press that we know that their torment has been extreme. Hamas has executed its crude propaganda goodbyes with hostages. The Hamas savages are masked, carry automatic weapons. They affect gentleness as they walk with their arms around hostages for support, or carry elderly women now unable to walk to the waiting Red Cross vans. The savages remind their hostages to keep smiling and waving, which they do. As ordered. Many have commented that until they were safely out of Gaza and in Israeli hands, they feared. They feared that it might not happen, that they could be snapped from the jaws of freedom and taken straight back to hell. They were, after all, even when being released, surrounded by mobs of men yelling Allahu Akbar as they were escorted from Hamas vans to ICRC vehicles. How could they not feel threatened? which, of course, was exactly what Hamas wanted, to empower the yelling mob while terrorizing the helpless Israeli civilians one last time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.